Um, as, as parents work their, their way back in, we are um, starting a new book this morning. So we have been in the book of Exodus for the last several months. I um, finished that last week, and we'll now be moving into the New Testament, um, into the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, as, um, you know, as we gather, um, before we jump into 1 Corinthians this morning, you know, I just, I guess we're going to get a little pre-sermon, we'll call it that. Um, I'm really grateful um, that we continue together in gospel communities. You know, we give these little like, commercials ever so often about why we should um, be in gospel community. But as I was standing at the back and just kind of looking around the room this morning um, and knowing folks who, who aren't here, um, familiar faces that are here kind of week in and week out, and, but knowing why, right, like that we've had um, w- loss of loved ones this week, um, that there are some who are um, actually at the hospital this morning dealing with some, some diagnoses of, of loved ones, um, just all the, just the, the life that goes on, um, that we want to be family, right? Like we don't say that because it's some like kind of quaint, cliche church word, that we really want to know one another and to love one another um, and to not see as much as we love Sunday morning and as, as glorious as it is to get to be together as a church family, that, that we don't want this to be the only aspect of the, the week of our life as Redeemer. And that's why we gather throughout the week in gospel communities. It's why we want to know one another so that we can live out the more than four dozen one another statements we see throughout Scripture, right? That we can bear with one another and love one another and forgive one another and pray for… Like, we want to do those things. Um, and so we just, maybe this is just a long commercial instead of a little sermon. Like, we just want to invite you in, right, to be a part of, of gospel communities, of living life together. Um, there's an element of that that just isn't found, um, unfortunately, as, as many Sunday mornings as you can come to. Um, it takes a lot of those to make up for even just a little bit of time really digging in with folks um, in gospel community. Um, so I guess that was just a long, a long commercial. Um, all right, so if you have your Bible, um, you can turn to 1 Corinthians. If you have your uh, tablet or your smartphone, you'll get to Acts and Romans, and then 1 Corinthians is right after that. If you get to the little books like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, go back to the left. Um, this morning, the initial aspect um, of this message is it may feel a little bit more um, like you're in a classroom. Um, as we start a new book, we just have to lay some foundation, right? And, and in order to really, if we're going to spend the next weeks and months um, in First Corinthians, we need to kind of start on, on a level playing field so that we can build something um, right and healthy and good, um, trusting that the Lord is going to use this. And so, we are going to be in the text this morning, um, but if it feels a little bit more like you're getting a lot of information, um, that's just kind of our first sermon in most, most books. Um, we do that, and, and the reason that we can't just jump in is because what we're going to see is that 1 Corinthians is actually a letter, okay? Where we have been in Exodus, Exodus is, is a historical document. It contained elements um, like poetry, but it was mostly a historical recounting of the birth of a nation, right? Their rescue, their setup. Um, them receiving a place of worship. Well, 1 Corinthians is a letter. And I know we're not a culture that tends to write a ton of letters anymore, um, but letters matter, and knowing some facts about them matter. It would be like getting a text, right, that you don't have that number on your phone. 
and you're trying to figure out because I'm going to interpret this text based on who sent it to me, right? Whether this is creepy or whether it's appropriate, right? Whether this is something I want to respond to or I want to block this number, all of those things are going to matter based on the res- who's sending you those words. And we know this about letters, that if you're going through your family's um, historical documents and finding letters, that it wouldn't matter whether this letter was written at the beginning of someone's life or the end of their life. It wouldn't matter whether it was written at a time of prosperity or whether it was written in the midst of a battle in World War II, right? It wouldn't matter if it was being sent from a wife or maybe a, a, someone, your, your fiancé or your mom, right? Like the, the, the way that you're going to interpret the language of a letter matters based on who is sending it, who it's being sent to, the time period of when it's being sent. All of these things matter. And so this letter was being sent to a specific church. Um, we in Pampa, Texas, would not read a letter written to a church um, in China the same way as they would, or a church in New York, or a really wealthy church, or a really impoverished church. Like those things matter, and they help us give some, some context to what we're doing. Um, and so I want us to start and just make sure we can kind of build out this foundation. And so we're going to read let's, the first three verses to begin with. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so first in verse 1, we just see that Paul is writing this letter, right? And so if he's the author of the letter, we want to make sure we at least have some understanding of who Paul is. Um, We could go into um, weeks of just talking about Paul and his life, right? And he wrote a good portion of the New Testament. But Paul was converted um, somewhere around the year 34, um, soon after um, Christ was crucified, that he was converted. But what we need to know about Paul was Paul grew up um, a trained Jew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jews, that he was schooled. And so he was very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. They would not have been um, something that he was vaguely aware of. He would have been schooled and trained and nuanced in them. That he was an educated man um, who had formal training, which wasn't always or very often even the case during this time period, um, spoke and wrote in multiple languages, right? Very educated guy. He also, though, uniquely was also a Roman citizen, all right? Which is going to explain his freedom and his ability to travel so freely. The only really um, carryover we have in our culture is a little blue American passport, okay? That, that passport still has the power to allow you to do some things in this world traveling internationally that no other nation has. And so when we were living in the Middle East, we had friends from all over um, Oceania, Europe, Asia that were there, and they knew that if something happened in our area or to one of us, that those who are Americans had the best chance to get out safely. They had the best chance for their government to come to the rescue. They had the best chance that a a Middle Eastern official might stop short of doing something when they saw you pull that out. Right, that, that Paul had that ability with his Roman citizenship to claim some things. And so even though he was a Jew, that he was also a Roman citizen, um, it, it matters because he is living with a foot kind of in two different worlds, right? That he is able to talk fluently in two different kind of cultural mindsets and backgrounds. 
What we're going to see, though, is that Paul, prior to being a believer, because he was so ingrained um, in his, his pharisaicalism that he hated the church. He hated Christians. And so he was actually there um, when Stephen was stoned. He was one that was um, pursuing and persecuting believers. Whether or not his hand was ever the one that took someone's life, we're not sure, but most likely he was. And so he was on his way pursuing believers to, to persecute them and to throw them in jail when the Lord quite literally knocked him down and said, no more, you're mine now. We see this, he recounts this multiple times um, in the book of Acts, that he tells his story of the Lord rescuing him and of calling him to the ministry, of sending him then both to Jews and Gentiles, that the scales fell from his eyes that he could see, and so he was concerned about God being worshiped and glorified. He wanted him to receive all worship and all glory because he knew he was deserving of it. And he saw then that one of the primary issues for people giving God glory and honor were the idols and the immorality in their life. And so he would, um, in almost all of his letters, he's going to talk about idols and things that would take glory away from God, take worship away from God, and the immorality in our life that would keep us from wanting to walk in obedience to him. So we're going to see this in 1 Corinthians often. Paul also, one of just the, the things that he was rooted in was because he had seen the resurrected Christ, because he knew that Jesus was alive, that he had not stayed buried in that tomb, and he had seen him and talked to him, that he knew the resurrection changed things and it mattered, and that it transformed people's lives. And so if Paul's life had been transformed, he knew the resurrection had that power to do it for anyone, and so they could leave their idols and their immorality behind. That there was a new era that had been established, and this hope in a living Christ who transformed, and that he knew that he was coming again. And so that that power and forgiveness was available. And so we see that Paul says, look, I'm called by the will of God to be an apostle. He's not saying, hey, you know, I was just happened to be in the area. He's saying, I was called by God to do this. He's not boasting in himself. He's simply saying, the Lord has given me this duty, this task to do. And so Paul walks in this, this interesting combination of humility because it's, it wasn't in his gifting, it was in the Lord's gifting of him, and yet confidence because the Lord has clearly said, this is what I want you to do. One of the few times in my life where I really felt that kind of balance of just humility and confidence was when the Lord, um, we, we began to plant Redeemer. And there was just this, this season in those first few months where I just felt like my days were, were numbered and, and that they were ordered by the Lord in really miraculous ways that I could not explain, but I just was feeling that whenever I went out in the day, I assumed that anyone that came across my doorsteps, the Lord had a conversation for us, right? And even though I intellectually know that now, there was just this sense of confidence, not that I was doing something tremendous or the Redeemer was going to be something, but that the Lord was just guiding and that's, the, that's the, the way that Paul walked with this humility and this confidence. He mentions um, another brother there in, in verse 1, Sosthenes. Um, we really don't know who he is, okay? He's not going to be mentioned again. The only other time this name is mentioned is actually in Acts um, eighteen seventeen, And as a, someone who was a leader at the, the local synagogue, and so very likely it's the same individual because he doesn't take the time to introduce him or to give you any background that, that this man had been beaten, actually, um, 
So what we can probably presume is that he became a believer, right? That he's known to the church in Corinth, and that's why he's able to just say, hey, you know, you know our buddy here, right? That he's with me. He may be Paul's um, secretary at this time, um, traveling with him. So when? We know that Paul wrote it. When did he write it? Um, He wrote this sometime between um, 54 and 55 A.D., so it's some 20 years after his conversion. It's the fourth letter that he wrote um, in the New Testament. Galatians was first, and then we have first and second Thessalonians. So this is one of his earlier writings is Corinthians. Um, he had actually spent 18 months in Corinth back in 51 and 52. So this is some three years later, right? So he, on his second missionary journey, he arrives in Corinth. He spends a year and a half there, which is really long for Paul's standards. Often it was way shorter than that. Um, and then now three years later, he's in the city of Ephesus, right? And he's writing a letter back to the church in Corinth where he had spent a considerable amount of time. Um, you can read about this in Acts 18, the year and a half that he spent in Corinth. Um, and what we're going to find is in 1 Corinthians 5, this is actually not the first letter he's written, right? He's actually already written a letter to the Corinthians that we just don't have anymore. And he refers to it. And so a lot of what was written in that letter had been misinterpreted and misunderstood. And so he's writing now a second letter because in chapter 1, verse 11, and later in chapter 16, he's had folks from Corinth come to him. So he's listening, hearing about what's going on in Corinth and the church. There's been some letters exchanged. He has sent a letter. And now he's understood that some things have not gone well. And he's writing a letter back to the church in Corinth, a place that he knows, that he loves, telling them, Um, and correcting some things. So, we know that it was written by Paul, that it was written in um, 54 or 55, um, after he had spent time there, and who's it written to? Right, it's written to the church in Corinth. Right, it's not written to the city of Corinth, it's written to the church in Corinth. It's why we need to make sure that we understand that it's written to those who believe in Christ, that trust Jesus. He's going to note both the, the local body in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth in a specific place, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we are part of the church in Pampa, right? We are the, a little C body, right? A little C church. But the church, the capital C church, is made up of all the believers around the world in all of history, right? And so the church is gathering in other nations, in other places, in other language, right? In, in things that we would, would find foreign to us, and yet they're, they're gathering because they love and trust and treasure and follow Jesus. We call that the universal church, the capital C church. And so he's writing to a unique group of believers who are part of the overall church. Just as this morning, we are preaching to a unique local group of believers, but we know that we are not the entirety of the church in the world. Corinth, it was a city in Greece, Um, and it's on an isthmus, right, which is kind of like a a peninsula, and so where it was located was only four and a half miles across from a body of water and a body of water, and what would actually happen is it became a really important commercial city as those coming into Italy would stop there, and those wanting to take trade routes into Asia would stop there because going around the coast was really dangerous. They actually built a road where they could drag their ships across this small little bit of land back into another bay of water. And so it became a really 
prominent commercial city because it, was, it had a port on each side, and basically the city took up this four and a half miles with ports on each side. And it was a prominent, um, successful, luxurious, wealthy city until they incurred the wrath of Rome in around the year 146, and Rome came in and just annihilated them and destroyed them. And for the next hundred years, the city sat basically dormant. There were a few folks there, but it was basically empty for about a hundred years. And then in 46, excuse me, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar, right, one of those names you know from history, actually reinstituted a colony in Corinth. And the city began to be rebuilt. And so they would refer to old Corinth and new Corinth. And the city would was rebuilt, and he actually, one of Rome's policies is when they needed to repopulate an area or send in a new colony, is they would take freedmen, those who had been um, slaves at one point but now had freedom, and so culturally they were higher than slaves, but they were not completely free, and they would send them as a way to kind of depopulate areas. And this is who went in and had now the opportunity, right, for the first time to advance. And so an independent, just kind of Wild West thing developed because for the first time these folks could do whatever they wanted, however they wanted, to gain freedom, status, power, wealth. And so it was repopulated and it just had this really rugged and independent spirit. Right? I hope some of that's going, okay, it's West Texas, right? <laughs> right? Like there's this idea of we, we do what we do, right? Everybody else can do what they do, but we do it here, right? No water, it's okay, we're going to live here anyway, right? Right? 60 mile an hour wind, it's okay, right? I mean, it's just like, we, we do it our way. And that's kind of what happened in Corinth, was that the folks that went there had something to live for, had something to fight for, and they began to flourish again. And it became a powerful city quickly again. And when, where there is money, then come people, right? And so people just flock in from around the world. And so we have now, in Paul's day, this Greek city, okay, so it's, it's located in Greece, and it's going to be affected by the idea of, of philosophy and wisdom, and yet it's going to be Roman-dominated because it's been repopulated with Romans, and so their culture and their laws and their religions are there, and now because there's money, the peoples from the world have showed up, and so different cults and, and religions from Asia have flooded in, Jews have arrived. And you now have this very cosmopolitan place that is got a buffet line of religious options. And it's got wealth and all the problems that come with wealth, right? In a port city. And so it became known as a city with a lot of sin and a lot of vice. It, there became some colloquial sayings, some euphemisms for um, to act like a Corinthian was just to commit immorality. To, to commit fornication, right? A Corinthian woman was not a compliment, right? Um, that other philosophers would say, not every man can travel to Corinth. And that was their way of saying, you're not all going to survive. That it was a tough place. And not everyone was built for or meant to live in a place like Corinth. And so, I don't know that we have, um, you know, just a clear kind of cultural city that but it would be somewhat of kind of a mix of like a Vegas, right, with like a New York, right, where the nations have come, where vice kind of reigns freely, and religion is just, you take what you want. And so the Jews and the believers in the city were bizarre. They were actually called atheists because they only took one God. 
instead of recognizing all the gods, instead of having this like kind of smorgasbord of I just take what I want when I want it, they were like distinct because they would only say well, we're only going to worship one. And so they were called haters of humanity and atheists because they denied the bulk of the gods. And so now this is the context. This is the city written by Paul who wrote about idols and immorality. And now he's writing it to the church who was diverse. That we're going to see Jews, Romans, Greek, wealthy, and poor all named as being a part of the church in Corinth. That it, it was mirroring its city. That it was a diverse body. But it was also mirroring its city not just in good ways but in bad Right, that it was taking on the culture of its city. And so because it lived in a pluralistic and moral society, we're going to find that the church in Corinth is really lax when it comes to morals. They're really they're just kind of like letting it kind of come in and breed amongst them. Because they love Greek philosophy, we're going to find that the church in Corinth tended to deny the resurrection. Right? And yet Paul would say the resurrection is the key factor that gives you the power not to live immoral lives. And so he's saying, like, you're denying the thing that gives you hope and forgiveness and power, and then you're living lives that look like those around you. So he sees these tremendous issues. They, the church in Corinth, believes most, not all of them, a lot of them believe that they have arrived spiritually, that they are hyper-spiritual, overly spiritual, and yet without obedience it's following And so Paul's going to use some sarcasm. We're going to see like in 1 Corinthians 4, where he's going to say, oh, that I had arrived like you have. They don't think Paul's arrived because he's weak, because he suffers, because he struggles. They're saying, you're not as spiritual, you're not as godly as us. And it's why in verse 1, Paul says, I am called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He is reminding them of his authority, that he has the right to say some things to them. What we're going to find is... Paul and Corinth have a long and um, difficult relationship, okay? The, the, the letter to the Corinthians is not um, the easiest letter, and it's also going to be why there's a second Corinthians, right? Like the, the relationship continues, and, and after first Corinthians, second Corinthians refers to, I just came, right? Like he's going, he goes back, and he writes letters that they have this kind of on-again, off-again relationship. And what is needed in Corinth is they need surgery. And so the bulk of what's going to happen is going to be behavioral issues that are driven by Paul's theology. And he's looking to to have surgery upon the hearts and the lives of the people in Corinth without killing them, right? Without completely stomping them out. And so we need to understand as we have just left Exodus, which was written by the Jews, for the Jews, it was their story that Corinth has... Jewish background believers in it, but it is predominantly a Gentile audience. It's predominantly a pagan audience, and so they're not going to have this like Old Testament understanding. Paul's going to have to work to give them some understanding of of where the Scriptures have been, because they've come out of a a multicultural, multi-God type society. So why? Last thing here, and then we're going to spend some more time in 1 Corinthians 1. So why are we studying 1 Corinthians? Because 1 Corinthians has a ton of practical theology. Right? It, just, it tends to be a, a life of, hey, here's how you live 
a life that is pleasing and obedient to the Lord in a society that doesn't want you to, that doesn't understand it, and that doesn't look like it. And if you're not aware, our culture's shifting. It has shifted. It is shifting things. It's, it's not as clear-cut of like, well, everyone just goes to church on Sunday, and everyone lives a semi, right, like, geo, um, um, Christian Judeo ethic, right? Like, that's, that's not happening anymore. And so Paul is writing to a group of believers who are trying to figure out what does it look like to live these holy and distinct lives before the Lord in a place that doesn't care and is actually going to mock and ridicule and humiliate them for doing it and call them the haters of humanity, call them the atheists. Right? I hope you hear some, some resonating, right, that Christians' positions now are often called those who are bigots and those who are against humanity not as those who are for them. That Paul's going to write, look, that because of the resurrection, because of Jesus, that we should expect transformation. We should expect obedience. And so he's going to hit on topics like unity, on sex, on marriage, on money, on the Holy Spirit, on the gifts of the Spirit, on mission, right? And what it looks like to be distinct. That there is a a pressure to ease into culture and to be lax on things that we are already feeling, right? That the church is often accused now of caving in on some things, of not keeping that distinction. And so Paul's going to address these things. We see in verse 2, he says, I'm writing it to the church of God that is in Corinth, listen, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. When he says sanctified, we just left Exodus, Right? And one of the last things we saw was that they sanctified Moses, or sorry, they sanctified Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. They sanctified the instruments that would be used in the tabernacle. They sanctified the clothing that would be worn, right? Saying that it's holy and it's separate and it's distinct and it's to be used for man to worship God. So he says, I'm writing to a people who have been sanctified. He's saying you have been made holy for a distinct purpose to worship God. And so there should be some clear delineation, right? And he says, and I want you, River, he says, to be called to be saints together. He is clearly calling from Exodus 19, 5 and 6, where he tells his people that we are to be a holy nation, right? A priesthood. Church, this is our calling as well, that we, as those who are in Christ, that you are holy, right? You are distinct, and you are meant to live in a culture that whether or not they are walking with Jesus or not, that we do that the distinction is seen, that we have a mission to do to make it clear who we belong to. Because what was happening was that the, the values that were, were cared about in Corinth were self-advancement, right? Like this ruthless self-advancement. They were competitive. They were individualistic. They loved power. They loved authority. They loved status. And they loved flashy displays of all of it. And none of that is of the cross. Right? The cross says humility. The cross says lay your life down to gain it. The cross is talked about as foolishness and as weakness. And so this whole mentality of what the cross does, what the gospel does, was foreign to the culture. And Paul is going to say, you got to choose. Who are you looking to impress? Are you looking to impress your culture to receive power and authority and credibility? He said, then you go live the Corinthian way. But if you're going to be in Corinth and you're going to be a sanctified people called by God's name to be holy priests, 
He said, then you have to show who you belong to, that you're adopted sons and daughters of the king, and so your lives need to be marked by humility and obedience and holiness. Who are you looking to belong to? Who are you looking to impress? I remember um, being in college, and it was t- towards the end of my time. I was about to have a degree, and it's, it's it, humiliating, honestly, that I had this thought, but I, it was such a clear thought. I'm going to share it. Like, I remember thinking, man, I'm 21 years old. I've kind of got this Jesus thing down. The, the rest of my spiritual life might be kind of boring if I get another 60 years. Right, like, the fact the Lord didn't just kind of, like, strike me down right there and say, you know, you arrogant little fool. Right, like, that I, I can say now, um, 16 years later, I don't, I don't think that anymore, right? The Lord has clearly brought hum, um, just brokenness and humility in my life that I see that I have much to strive for, much to, to pursue after. But there was, this, there was this moment in my life where I was just like, intellectually, I thought I knew it all. Now, it wasn't mean I wasn't living a holy and obedient life, but I thought I just knew the things. I thought I had arrived and that I could look down at others. And that's what was going on in Corinth was they thought because they had this wisdom and, and it played itself out in some of the spiritual gifts being evident. They're like, we just, we've got it, right? We're good. And Paul, you keep talking about suffering and struggling. We're not so sure we want any of that. And if we're not careful, right, we, we can ease into this sense that we've arrived because we can recount the gospel and because we know some and we see other people struggling and we just some like low level like low grade fever of arrogance just begins to move in where we nod at a sermon and say yeah I know that nothing new there yeah 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 I know what Jesus expects and instead of devotion and treasuring of him and looking to see how the gospel really roots out the, the dark areas of my life and how it begins to give me the implications of how I should live, we just begin to become puffed up and arrogant with knowledge and with pride, with wisdom, and, and we can talk a spiritual game and yet our lives look no different than the culture around us. This is the heart of the letter to the Corinthians. The warning, the challenge to us So let's read verses four through nine. So Paul continues, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Then in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What you see in some of Paul's letters is that after that initial kind of um, introduction, he praises them for the things, some of the things that they're doing well. He doesn't, you notice he doesn't praise the Corinthians. It's not, it's not negative. It's not like the letter to the Galatians where he just kind of comes out swinging and it's like, you fools, what's, what's going on with you? Right, But he, how, what does he say over and over again? He says Jesus, right? He's saying over and over again, I praise God right, for the things that he's done. I praise Jesus for what he's done. I praise him for his faithfulness. What he's saying is, I don't want you to be arrogant. I don't want you to be so puffed up thinking I'm going to praise you because of your knowledge and your wisdom and your humility. He's saying anything you have is because it was given 
Look at this. Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ. He's reminding them that he's just subtly starting going, anything you have, you were given. It's been received. You did, you did not figure it out. You're not smarter than everyone else. It was given to you. Verse 3, grace to you and peace, right? It's the gospel that we as believers have been given grace, which means we don't get what we deserve, right? We have given what Christ gains, not what we deserve. And he says, and peace, peace is what we have with God now. It's the gospel is that we have what we do not earn, what we cannot deserve, and then we get peace with God and with one another because of it. And so he's reminding them, so I give thanks because of what God has given you, not because of what you have figured out. That your standing in Jesus is because of what he has done, not what you've done. Verse 5, he says that in every way you were enriched in him. Not that you have figured out how to be enriched. You have been given the gifts, the hope, the knowledge, the understanding. It's been given to you in speech and knowledge. Look at verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they have this idea that they've arrived. There's nothing new to know or to learn or to have, right? And if you begin to feel that, then, then, then right, Sunday and any time in your word just begins to feel like it's repeat, right? I've already got it. Oh, yeah, that's a good reminder, right? But I know it. What he's saying, right, Paul has seen the resurrected Christ. He's saying, there's a day coming where Jesus is going to split the sky and step into eternity again as the returning king. And at that day, you're not going to go, I know him. Every knee is going to bow. They're either going to bow in in, in deference and in worship to him, or they're going to bow out of fear to him. He says, you think you know, you don't know it all. You are still waiting for it all to be revealed to you. How do we know this? Because Peter goes from being a fearful coward, right, who struggles to know how to follow Jesus until, the, right, he sees the resurrected Christ. And then we see books like First Peter and Second Peter written, where we see a different Peter because he was transformed because Jesus is alive and Peter had things to learn. We see John, the beloved disciple, the one who called himself, the one that Jesus loved, right, the one who was at the Mount of Transfiguration, who walked with Jesus for more than three years, who knew him well, when he is given a revelation in the book of Revelation, listen to how he responds. He's hearing Jesus speak. And this is in chapter, chapter 1, verse 17. John writes this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And he gets, right, John sees someone he knew. But remember, Jesus had been like cloaked in flesh. Even though he embodied all of deity, it was hidden somewhat for us. When John sees him, he falls at his feet wanting to die, thinking, I cannot. And he knew and loved Jesus. So Paul is saying, there's a day coming where you think it's going to be like, oh yeah, that's Jesus. He's like, no! It's going to be far more tremendous than you. You don't have this all figured out. He is far more glorious. Verse 8. As you, in verse, the end of verse 7. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end. 
guiltless in the day of our Lord. He doesn't say you'll sustain yourself or your knowledge will make sure you get there. He says God will sustain you to the end and that you'll be guiltless, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not because they're living holy and perfect lives, but because they're covered in the blood of Christ. Right? He's saying it's not because you've figured it out. It's because you've been covered by something and his righteousness is now your righteousness. It's not your righteousness that gets you there. It's not your righteousness that sustains you or makes you blameless. It's Jesus's. And he's coming for us. And then verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He just says this phrase, right, God is faithful. It feels so churchy, except we just left Exodus. And in Exodus, the people, like, can't even get the law down the mountain before they're running amok, doing their own thing, following idols and worshiping something else. The only reason the people aren't consumed is because God is faithful. Church, the only way we get to the end is because God is faithful. Because he is merciful and gracious. Listen to how he said, God says this to his people in Malachi. This is um, chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Right? Right, you're thinking. He said, I don't change, and so you don't die. Because he is faithful, we can get to the end. Because he is faithful to cover us in his righteousness. He is faithful to bring about holiness in us. He is faithful to get us to where he has promised it's not due to our faithfulness. And so what Paul is saying is, you have no room for pride. You have no room for arrogance. You have room for worship. To know and to follow and to trust King Jesus. So he's already beginning to hint at the issues. Right? He's wanting, he praises God not for their behavior, but for what God has done. He talks about wisdom and knowledge. And what he's saying is God is active. That he was the first mover. That he's the one who has rescued them. That without his faithfulness, we're hopeless. So church, I know this morning is, is a bit unique. But here's our hope for, for our time in 1 Corinthians. That for, for, for all of us, there would be surgery that would take place. And that for some, it would mean salvation. Right, that your eyes would be open and you would be like Paul for the first time, no longer religious, but seeing Jesus is worthy of worship, alive and ready to transform. For others, that your arrogance or your pride or these areas where you become lax in morality or, or areas where you're not even sure, you don't even know there are issues yet, that he would do surgery. For others, that it would be that he would um, shore up areas that you're, you're looking to cave in on. As the culture just presses hard, you're going, I don't know that I can stand any longer. And that as a, as a family, as a church, that we would trust the king and his message and his gospel, that we together, right, would learn how to be holy and distinct in our culture that is running the opposite of holy. That we would learn how to be the church together in this society. That we, would, that we would have confidence in the grace that's been given to us, not in the grace that we've earned. Because Paul thanks God for the grace that they have been given and they are walking in really immoral ways. And he says, it's, but you are gonna be, you're gonna be preserved because of what God has done. So let's get the, the ship righted. Like, let's walk in a way that shows that you belong to him. So church, that's our, that's our heart. That's our hope for this. 
Um, next week, we'll, we'll jump into um, 1 Corinthians and just kind of start there. We won't need to lay the same sort of foundation. Um, but I hope that, that it's helpful for us as we kind of get us all pointed in the right direction. Um, I'm going to pray for us. Um, the band's going to come back up. Pray that as, if you need to visit with someone, talk with someone, there'll be some folks in the back of the room. If you want to sit and let the Spirit minister to you, you do that. If you want to stand and worship our King who has given grace. And so even this morning, if you realize you are lax in things, that He has been faithful to you even when you aren't faithful. Right? That we would worship Him, repent, and respond. Let's pray.